everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. Two Terminators, a Thelma, a Louise, the year that was, 1991. everybody and welcome back to our episode if you chimed into the last one we talked about the academy awards the 64th which were held honoring the movies of 1991 and we're back with this second episode that are going to talk about some other movies that may or may not have had some wins some nominations but all that sort of uh we wanted to explore again the year is 1991 with us always is brett hello brett Hello, glad to be back. Great year. Decided to dive into some more good movies. And we have Toby back with us. Hello, Toby. Hello. Uh, so we all picked two movies to discuss. Um, so six total, a uh, variety of different plot lines, different personalities, different people, but all in all, pretty solid year. So you guys ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Right. So... Well, it looks like I'm the first to go because this is the movie that I picked. From 1991, it is Bart. Is it Barton or Barton? Barton. Okay, Barton Fink, directed by Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, although Ethan Cohen is uncredited. This is the Cohen brothers. So, this movie is about a playwright from New York, Barton Fink. He travels to uh, the illustrious world of Hollywood, where he is going to write a new movie. He sort of thinks down on movies. He loves the life of theater. He wants to make something for the common man, another sort of art form. He's very blind in saying that. There's a whole case of writer's block he has. He meets his very eccentric um, salesman in a hotel that he's staying at named Charlie Meadows, played by John Goodman, who's just fantastic here. He really goes to the whole Coen Coen Brothers treatment of sort of absurd interactions with people um i don't know it's a wild film i originally didn't think about this movie picking it for 91 but when i remembered it won the palme d'or i was like you know what we should see this i don't know if either of you have seen this before but very interesting movie especially in terms of writer's blocks and sounds like a big thing for people a big thing for the coen brothers so personal to them but yes that is barton fink yes yeah it was my first time watching it too um, I didn't know what to expect really going in, but I found that I really liked it because of the writer's block thing. Uh, being such a big part of it, I kind of identified with that in a way. I've been there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I love me some Coen Brothers. Like I think they are awesome. Like some of my favorite directors ever. But this was one that I wasn't like of the ones that I hadn't seen from them, it was not exactly near the top of my list, but I did still really want to see it uh, since we were going to cover this year. And so, yeah, better than I expected it to be. Um, uh, Christian, you kind of mentioned Cohen's doing their typical wild thing. And I just found myself like throughout the whole film, like something would happen and I would just be like, Oh, that's so Cohen's. 
That is so Cohen's. That's so Cohen's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree too. Um, it's not like one of my favorite of theirs, but it's Same. got a feel a feel of them in it. Yeah. Like it's not gonna be up there with like Inside Lewin Davis or No Country or uh, you know, Fargo, but it's kind of like an earlier Cohen's movie. It worked really well for me. And so. it's their second, their second with John Goodman, who's like their, I mean, pretty much their main staple. They use him for yeah. nearly everything, and he's amazing in this movie. He really is. He is awesome in this movie. There's so much symbolism with him, with the hotel that Barton stays in. Like It works so perfectly. And I mean, the Wikipedia page on this, again, I love looking at Wikipedia because they tell you things you wouldn't know, is massive is so massive on all the themes and allegories that this movie could be about. Interesting. Yeah. You know what I couldn't pin down was the wallpaper. Because, like, the wallpaper keeps, like, falling off. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out what that was, like, trying to represent. If it was, I, like, him coming apart or what. But. So the only thing that I know is I read off of IMDb is every time John Goodman enters the room or leaves the room, the wallpaper starts to peel mm, so i don't know if that's like it's what you're saying brad or like hey this is maybe a sketchy guy because we sort of don't know who john goodman is until like that very end that's probably true that's that's a good point yeah i absolutely love when um when john goodman first enters the room because how we meet john goodman is you know barton fink is staying in this hotel for an uncertain amount of time and John Goodman is like living next door and is super loud. So Barton calls the front desk and my neighbor's being loud. You tell him to quiet down. Goodman gets the call. And we just like the camera follows him leaving his apartment to Barton's. But we don't see him like we're watching from Barton's point of view following the sound. Again, that is so Cohen's. Uh, <laughs> but that mix of like it's very comedic and a little bit absurd but also pretty shocking and dark at times as well. Um, let's see. So this I put in our fun facts was the first film to win all three major awards at Cannes. Again, I said it won the Palme d'Or. It also won Best Director and Best Actor. And it was uh, one of the rare films, I don't think many have done this, that was chosen unanimously for the Palme. Wow. And also because it won three, the next year they had a limit movies to winning only two or less. That's so weird. And now I'm pretty sure it's only a one thing. Like, you can win one, but you can't win more. Yeah, I think so. So, uh, this is nominated for three Oscars. Best Supporting Actor, Michael Lerner. Wrong one. Yeah, okay. Should have been John. <laughs> Anybody remember Michael Lerner in this movie? <laughs> like, he's a very familiar face for a character actor, but... Not as big as an impact of Goodman. Um, best production design, I can honestly see that. Yes. For the hotel and best costume design. Um, and like I said, the uh, writer's block theme. The Coen brothers were suffering writer's block from their previous film, Miller's Crossing, which I haven't seen. I really want to see, though. So that sort of semi-inspired this. And I mentioned this, too, that Barton wants to create a new theater for the common man, which is already the movies. But because he's like from the hoity-toity world of Broadway, 
the movies are a lesser cheap thing. Yeah. I also want to say John Turturro is really good in this as well as Martin Fink. Um, Role. What's that? The titular role. The titular role. (laughs) Yeah, he's really good too. Um, But obviously John Goodman is just clearly the, the standout. Should have been in the best supporting actor conversation. Not just to be nominated, but also to win. Um, yeah, I don't know what Michael Lerner is very like big and flashy here, but no, not as good. I can honestly say the biggest draw from this is that Barton lives in hell. And if anybody wants to see it without spoiling it, it's the final scenes of this movie that you're like, huh, he's in hell, ain't he? Mm, yeah, I love it. I love all the themes. Okay. Anything else on Barton Fink before we move on to our next film? Like you guys said, it ain't my favorite of the Coen Brothers movies, but it's still pretty, it's decent. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Next film is actually one that I picked, and it was one that I had seen before, uh, but was really excited to watch it again. It is John Singleton's film, Boys in the Hood. Um, and if, as we mentioned at the beginning of our last episode, John Singleton got a director nom for this. So not only being the first black director nominated for that award, but also being the youngest at the time, um, which he was like, what, 24 or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, really young for a director. Um, definitely an independent film. It's a coming-of-age film starring Cuba Gooding Jr. Um, in the lead role. And basically him and his friends living in the Crenshaw ghetto of Los Angeles um, and is talking about their issues with race and violence in the area. Film kind of mentions that, you know, gang violence is very pertinent in the area um, and very visible, especially for the young men and the teenagers living in that area. The, the film kind of opens in a weird way looking at it in 2020 or 2019 where it says, this many um, black men were killed in this area. Most of it was black on black crime. Which when you think about today, you're like, a uh, weird way to start it off. But it kind of does dissect their relationship with the police as well um, a little bit in interesting ways. But a big part of this movie is also not Cuba Gooding Jr., Morris Chestnut's character, and Ice Cube's character, these three friends, uh, but also... Gooding Jr.'s father, who is played by Lawrence Fishburne, um, who is absolutely spectacular in this movie. His name in the movie is Furious Styles. Hmm. Um, and he's kind of like kind of like an iconic dad character, I think. He's also um, a reason. Yeah, very much a voice of reason. He kind of tries to guide his son to avoid um, the gang life um, in the neighborhood. And so... Thoughts on this one? Um, had you seen it before? What did you think? Yeah, this is my second time watching it. Um, I think it's really sort of powerful. Like you said, well, the way it begins with the talking about violence in the communities, it's sort of like the whole movie sort of presents like the only options that these kids had were like not you know very desirable because it's either like be a a gang member or whatever or just like or be successful and it's like if you don't do one thing then you just you're at the end of the the spectrum sort of 
and it's like sad in that way. Mm-hmm. It also says like the only way to get out of all of this is to go to college. That's right. like the big thing too, because um, Morris Chestnut's character is trying to get into a good school, play football, and mm-hmm. it's almost like the impossible dream. Especially when his brother's Ice Cube, who keeps berating him and putting him down, but his mother thinks so highly of him. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, so my second time seeing this, I think I took it more impactful since seeing it. Right. It's definitely a very impactful, sad film. Um, also sad to think that John Singleton is no longer with us. He yes. passed last year. And this was his like first film, and it's such a great first time outing, too. Right. Yeah. Definitely a personal movie for him. And like I, like I said, um, Lawrence Fishburne's really good in this. He's the voice of reason to the nth degree. Like, he knows that these kids, where they live, it's dangerous. He doesn't want his son to get into this life of crime like other kids have. So he says, here's what you got to do to do that. You got to stay in school. You got to be the best you can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this. Yeah, I think this movie was coming two years after Do the Right Thing. Um, and so you got this two films in a three-year span where... You know, there's a scene in this movie, um, and I'm not going to reveal what happens. This is another one where I think you kind of have to watch it. I don't want to spoil the very sad scene. Um, but it kind of reminded me of a similar scene in Do the Right Thing that just like it kind of grips you and you almost can't breathe for a little bit while it's happening. Yeah. Especially being a second time viewer when you know it's coming, you can't prepare for it effectively. Uh, it's just like you'll feel yourself tensing up getting ready for it like, God, I don't even want to watch this. But for sure, really important film. Um, I, I like that, like Lawrence Fishburne has a conversation with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Morris Chestnut about gentrification. Um, oh, that whole scene where everybody comes up to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very relevant. Interesting. Very relevant. Very, very relevant. And also, the, like one of the first images in the film is like a bullet riddled poster of Ronald Reagan. And I was just oh, like, that's great. <laughs> oh, John Singleton. <laughs> Genius, I see what you're doing here. How about Ice Cube? Like, pretty sure this is his first starring role. Mm-hmm. After and I, coming off, what what is his group called? NWA. That's it. Straight yes. out of Compton. Um, yeah, and I I think he's great. Like Lawrence Fishburne is the highlight for me, but Ice Cube, the the things that his character kind of comes to terms with, especially his scene near the end of the movie. I also think he should have been in the running for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Oscar that went to Jack Palance, which is kind of weird, but really good performances in this. A really good ensemble. There is. Like, when you really, like, look at who was actually nominated and you see all these people in this movie, and it's like none of them got nominations. It didn't—I could have—I don't know. Like, it could have been nominated for, like, Best Picture. It's just, like, one of those things where it's, like, in retrospect— with like even do the right thing too it's like you know would they have done differently if yeah they knew what was gonna happen it also, it also gave us one of toby's favorite actresses gina king Mm-hmm. yes yes oh he's he's like yep she's one of my faves <laughs> yeah early role for her early role for nia long um you know cuba gooding jr was Pretty new at this time. Morris Chestnut was really young at this time. So a lot of really good actors kind of getting their first 
big break with this movie, in a sense. I have this quote that I want to read. Um, when he pitched this to Columbia Pictures, they wanted uh, John Singleton. They wanted somebody else to direct. And he said, hell no, I'm not going to let somebody from Idaho or Encino direct a movie about living in South Central Los Angeles. They can't come in here and cast it and go through the rewrites and know exactly what aesthetics are unique to this film. That's awesome. Like Again, this is a personal film to him. I like that some of the characters, are, he based off people. He shot this in sequence, too. So he, he himself felt he grew as a director as the filming went on. Yeah. Yeah, the other fun fact you put here that's really interesting to me. Like I read today, I had to do a double take. John Singleton presented his script to Lawrence Fishburne while both were working on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Singleton was security and Fishburne a cast member. Had no idea about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. <laughs> and in the background, hey, I wrote this script. You can just hear. Ha <laughs> 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 We have talked about Pee-wee's Big Adventure in our 1985 episode, so covered him before as well. Uh, but this was nominated for two Oscars, like I said, Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, both for John Singleton, both very much deserved, and both really big nominations. I mean, those are like, I, I think, even though it's only two, this had to be, you know, in a year of five to ten, I think this would have got in, potentially, oh, to this yeah. picture. So. I think so. Because it got director and screenplay, so... Yeah. Very good film. I love it. Um, I first saw it as a freshman in college, and it was very impactful then. But think about now being more educated on some of the issues it's bringing up and still looking for new things in it. It's even better. So It's a great double feature with Do the Right Thing. Take it easy, though, because they're both very, I mean, they start out and then they go hard. Yes, I wouldn't watch them both on the same day. That would be... It'd be a lot to take oh, in. Yes. yes. All right, so I actually had our next film, um, if we go alphabetically. And it was a new watch for me, but I wanted to watch it because it was directed by another of my favorite directors, Martin Scorsese. And it is Cape Fear. So this is a story of... Um, Sam Bowden and his family, who's played by Nick Nolte. And what, like 14 years earlier, he had served as the criminal lawyer for a um, convicted rapist and sexual um, domestic abuser named Max Cady, who's played by Robert De Niro. What happened was that Nick Nolte held some evidence and testimony that could have gotten Max Cady a lighter sentence, but decided not to because he knew that Cady had done something terrible and wanted to see him serve time for it, basically, um, for sexually assaulting um, a teenager. And so, but Cady serves his time in prison, 14 years, gets out, and basically begins stalking Cady and his family, um, his wife, played by Jessica Lange, and his daughter, played by Juliette Lewis. De Niro and Lewis were both nominated for Oscars for this one. Really good performances there. It's basically a, it, it's a thriller. It's a thriller of Katie basically terrorizing this family in ways that start small, but become much larger and much more violent over time, leading to a really big climax. Edited by Scorsese's longtime collaborator, Thelma Schoenmacher. The editing is very interesting and very fast paced here. 
really good thriller. Um, I don't know that I would have nominated it in year five, but definitely a really not like any other Scorsese work I think I've seen. Right. So, yeah. What are your thoughts? I mean, the score is great. Yes. I mean, because, you know, Bernard Herrmann obviously is a great uh, at doing scores. Definitely. And Robert De Niro is pretty great in it. Um, I would have dominated him for sure. Yeah, same. No, Brad Chris- didn't. This is a remake. Yeah, it is a remake. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. Don't be shocked. Toby's seen it. <laughs> yeah. The originally mean? It's Brad who I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. The, they're in the. Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum were in this because they're in the original. What do you mean the original? Oh, this is a remake? Hey. Yeah, I had no idea. Uh, no, this, no, I like this. Actually, I like this one better than the original one. Yeah, I mean, that's my thing. And I think the only reason why is because in the 60s, when the original one was made, the level of violence that you can show is only so much. Mm-hmm. Whilst in this one, the level of violence, you can see everything. There's right. a really did. Yeah, like there's a really intense scene between De Niro and Elena um, Douglas. It's very graphic and brutal, but it's something you would never see in the 62 version. Yeah. So this version, the character of Max Cady, you hate him. Like yes. Robert Mitchum in the original one is kind of suave. So much you're like, I could trust this guy. Well, Robert De Niro is just ugly. He's brutal. He's an asshole. Like you, you don't want him to succeed in anything. You'd rather see him dead than anything. Yeah. Exactly. And then with, like the weird relationship between him and Juliet Lewis. Oh, shut yeah. oh, gives me chills. Ugh, also, not in a good way. Juliet Lewis's cornrows when she showed up when she showed up to the Oscars that year is like Ooh, not a good look. Of itself. It's, it, it's very I don't want to say experimental. I wouldn't go that far, but like the style, like he uses some negatives, he takes the screen uh-huh. to red quick camera movements like scorsese was one to take risks like that but when i say it's like it's it's different you know it it, he i think he like really buys in to the thriller identity of the movie and the genre it's definitely his um homage to like hitchcock movies too yeah i can see that but um i guess the one thing that i would probably not the one thing, but one thing I'd critique most about the movie is like I really love the buildup of it, but then like the last I don't know twenty minutes when it gets really really intense. At sometimes I was like, oh my god, this is just too much. Like, <laughs> let's get to it, finish it. Right. Um, whether Katie's gonna die or not, I hope he does. But um, I think that last bit could have been shored up a little bit, but also it is a real testament to Schoenmacher's editing in those scenes as well. So I can't be too upset about that. It's almost like his blockbuster movie too, I will say, because he's coming off of Goodfellas here. That's true. I mean, it said originally, I wrote originally to be directed by Spielberg until he saw that Scorsese had some box office potential with this one. This would be an interesting directorial effort for spielberg oh yeah but um i will say too that toby knows this movie well because of the famous simpsons episode oh yeah it's very very interesting interesting it's called what i think it's what is it called it's called cape fear right 
Yeah, it's called Cape oh, Fear. But it's oh, it's different. called Cape Fear. Spelled different. Uh, okay, gotcha. But yeah, um, it was nominated for two Oscars, like I mentioned, Best Actor for Robert De Niro. Um, him and um, Nick Nolte are kind of like co-leads here. Best Supporting Actress for Juliette Lewis. Um, and the score that Toby mentioned from Elmer Bernstein is a mixture of Bernard Herrmann's score for the 1962 film plus treatments from other films, including Torn yeah. Curtain. That's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, um, I which was definitely... I could see why how that could be because when the score I didn't know that when I was first watching and when the great score started I'm like wow this sounds like a classic like Hitchcock type movie score oh. so definitely one of the better aspects but obviously it couldn't be nominated because it's not original so um my last thing on the movie the sky like I don't know if y'all noticed but like anytime it shows the sky in this movie it looks like terrifying it almost looks like visual effects are used whether it's like the clouds or the lightning yeah especially this when first, this was his first movie to use visual effects there oh. you go which i noticed the visual effects heavy when the boat starts going onto the actual river yeah i noticed that yeah same anything else on cape fear before going to our next film once again it is a remake it is <laughs> All right, Christian, you've got our next film. All right. So this next film I absolutely loved, and I was like, these two got to see it. It is The Fisher King, directed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame. So this is about a radio DJ uh, played by Jeff Bridges. He has sort of fucked up. He calls out sort of like the yuppie lifestyle, which leads one of his listeners uh, he's a shock jock. I don't know if I said that. But at least one of his listeners to commit a mass murder in a nightclub. He's fired because of his comments that sort of led to that, the guilt. He's living with his girlfriend, played by Mercedes Rule. And one day in the park, he meets this sort of strange man. Um, he's sort of mentally not all there. But he's played by Robin, Robin Williams, the late, great Robin Williams. They hang out together, and he sort of follows him. Sort of wondering, like, what this guy's deal is. Why does he act the way he does? Robin Williams wants to find the Holy Grail and tells the story of the Fisher King. Uh, whilst Jeff Bridges wants to sort of help him get his love interest and sort of get him back on track. It's a tale of friendship, a tale of sort of, I would say, other than friendship, it's a story of, I don't know. There's so much to do with this movie, but these two do become friends while Jeff Bridges sort of feels guilty about what happened, especially because he learns how this guy, Robin Williams' character, whose name is Perry, relates to that murder that I talked about in the very beginning. Sad film, but great film nonetheless. Like I, When I say I love this movie, I loved this movie. I don't know about y'all's, because y'all's probably never seen it, but go um oh i didn't boy. love it i'm sorry i hate you i hate you <laughs> <laughs> i did like it. i thought it was a solid movie one thing i will say like the acting in this movie is awesome like i would consider giving this film best ensemble just because i love robin williams in this movie i think he's phenomenal I think Mercedes Rule is awesome in this movie. I think her best act, best supporting actress win is totally deserved. 
I think Jeff Bridges, like it took when the movie first started, I was like, oh, Jeff Bridges, he's not clicking with me here. But by the time it ended, I was like, wow, Jeff Bridges is really good in this movie. And I also liked um, Amanda Plummer as Lydia, you know, Robin Williams' love interest. I thought she was great, too. And so that that four-part acting ensemble, and especially the chemistry between Bridges and Williams, is really, really good. I mean, like, this is like, like I said when I first started, the acting in this movie, awesome. Really, really good. The rest, I thought it kind of meandered for me a little bit, but at the same time, I it was shockingly relevant to today when we're talking about the mass shooting that occurs and when that's finally like visually represented on screen, really, really disturbing. And it sat with me for a few days, just kind of that image and whatnot. And so, and also sort of how like the media is responsible for some things, but if you like the things you say, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like Pizzagate how there was a conspiracy theorist over Pizzagate, if we know that story, and our listeners do, that led to a shooting similar to this at a place that had nothing to do with anything this idiot was saying. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Toby, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, definitely, like, the acting is top-notch. Robin Williams is fantastic. Um, the story wasn't what I was expecting. Like I was the first time watching it, and it's very interesting the way it takes. I don't know, like the creative aspects of it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Like the. I don't know. Yeah, totally. It's, it's very, it's very quirky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm expecting. I think. I think it worked. Have you both seen Brazil by any chance? No. Yes. Okay. So Brazil is also Terry Gilliam's film, and it feels sort of like that in terms of like its stylistic approach too. It does. He has, he has like the camera angles. There's a lot of red showing on here because of the red knight situation that Robin Williams talks about that he has to battle to get to the Grail. I mean, it's like a it's almost surreal surrealist fantasy grounded in the biggest magical kingdom of them all, New York City. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I love like the scenes between Robin Williams and the other like homeless individuals in New York. Yeah. Like those are really, really good scenes that are kind of fun in a I, weird I, way. I love Michael Jeter in this. Me too. He's, he's like the other um if you've ever seen this everybody, he's like the other main homeless friend of Williams. There's like a whole scene where he's singing what, like there's no business like showbiz or something like that. But no, he's like He's one of the best in this. Yeah. I also just want to give attention. The 1987 to 1993 span of Robin Williams is unbelievable. Okay, starting in 1987, Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poet Society in 89, Awakenings in 90, Fisher King and Hook in 91, Aladdin in 92, and then Mrs. Doubtfire in 93. Damn! The man was yeah. on a roll. Like, yes. that's wild. So good. But Also, you mentioned Amanda, Amanda Plummer, Christopher Plummer's daughter. She's so good in this. Yeah, she's like, lovely. She's like a quiet little mouse in this movie, but it's so lovely. Yeah, I love how the video store is like used as a setting for their burgeoning 
relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's because Mercedes Rule's character runs a video rental store. Mm-hmm. Her like her win for this because she did win Best Supporting Actress. It's kind of it's an interesting win, I will say. I don't love it, but I don't hate it. It's good. Yeah, I agree. I I'm the same way. Like if I look at the the win itself, I'm the same way. But then I look at like the rest of the category and the rest of the supporting actress performances I saw from the year, and it makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think it was a particularly sense. strong yeah. category. But yeah. Um, do you want to go over everything else it was nominated for? Yeah. So like I said, this one supporting actress for Mercedes Rule, nominated for four, including uh, Robin Williams for Best Actor, Original Screenplay, which for the life of me, writing this, I thought this was adapted. So I, I had to find like five different sources to say this was original. <laughs> On production design, which I totally agree with. And original score. Yes. Yeah. The score should is nice, gotten, too. Should have gotten also Jeff Bridges for an actor in this. They are both co-actors in this. Yeah. I agree. They're both so good. All right. Well, Toby, you've actually got our final two movies. So would you like to lead us into our next one? Yeah. So the next one is uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Ah! <laughs> Directed by James Cameron. Um, so it's... The Obviously, it's the sequel to the Terminator, and it, instead of the Terminator takes uh, the point of view of Sarah Connor, the Terminator Two is more uh, John Connor as a kid, and um, there's a um, more Terminators coming back from the future, one to protect John and his mom, and one who are trying to get them. Um, John and one one of the Terminators break his mom out of jail. Or, no, there's, like, the mental... What is it? The mental asylum? Yeah. Asylum. Uh, it's, like, yeah. pretty exciting scene when she when they're escaping. Uh, but, yeah. It's a pretty exciting movie. It's, like, one of the best, I think, action movies ever made. One of the best sequels. Yes. Oh, best sequels ever made. You know, uh, it won four Oscars, which is... Cool and nominated for six, and yeah. just good for a sequel, especially since you know the Terminator wasn't nominated for anything. Yeah, only time that's ever happened. First sequel to have first film nominated for Oscars, where where first film wasn't nominated. I love this movie so much. Like this movie is just flat out awesome from start to finish. It's- I've seen it. I've seen it like three times, I think three or four times, but the most recent two times were in the last like four months because I saw it before Terminator Dark Fate and it just it never gets old it flies by it is like edge of your seat basically the entire time and most importantly like it actually like has a theme to it we're talking about like the brutality of humanity and how humanities just are brutal to each other humans are just brutal to each other and whatnot and I love Sarah Connor's final thought of like being hopeful because Terminator that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator basically learns to value human life throughout the course of the movie. And she's like, if he can do that, maybe we have a chance because the film is all about nuclear Holocaust um, judgment day, you know, being, and that being represented on screen. So it actually has a point, but is also fun and exciting and just a thrill ride from start to finish. 
totally agree. One of the best action films ever made. One of the best sequels ever made. Should have been nominated for Best Picture. Screw you, Bugsy, for taking its spot. Yes, Bugsy took so many spots from so many things. <laughs> yes. I always say that this is, um, if Terminator was like the independent low-budget film, this is the... I mean, James Cameron directed both, but this is like the James Cameron version of Aliens because Alien is the lowbrow independent movie and then Aliens, like this, the big box office that is boom, crash special effects. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I've seen this like multiple times. It's like um, Silence of the Lambs. It's one of my dad's favorite movies. So I've seen it like, you know, comes on TV. It's on. And I like the original too, the, the first one just as much, I think. This one's obviously more exciting, but just the whole themes of humanity and and action at the same time is um, kind of a cool mashup. Yeah. Well, Christian, like you said, with this being the more big-budget box office hit, they were just able to do so much more with it. I mean, the, the visual effects in this movie are just stunning, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. The T-1000, played by um, Robert Patrick, being this, like, liquid metal dude is incredible like it still holds up to this day yes yes holds up very well like for early 90s oh my god the special effects in this are great yeah because i mean the first one if i recall they show the robotic form of schwarzenegger but this you're dealing with special effects that is more liquefied in the thousand. like he's going through bars Mm -hmm. yeah it's more like stop motion animation in the first one, I think, where it's like jolt, jolty sort of. But this one is like so much better. It, you know, increases yeah. quality. Yeah. And I I was actually watching a video on this. And Christian, you might have sent it to me. Or maybe I sent it to you. Or maybe neither. I can't remember. But like, they're, despite having a pretty big budget, they were still pretty limited on financing the visual effects. So there are certain scenes where it is like CGI liquid Robert Patrick and then others where it's just him in a metallic looking suit. Like <laughs> quick shots of that because just because they didn't have the budget to do the whole thing CGI. But Well, you have to like imagine too that the Terminator, the Terminator wasn't a box office like juggernaut. Yeah. So they're sort of gambling on this and this became like a huge, huge success. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so some things that I want to point out and a little facts. Uh, Edward Furlong, who is, um, oh my gosh, John Connor. He visibly ages in this film because of how damn long it took to make. It took eight months to make this. The Terminator took only six weeks. Wow. Industrial Light and Magic, the computer graphics team had to grow to 36 artists to bring the T-1000 to life, costing about $5.5 million dollars equivalent to like eight months for only about three and a half minutes of on-screen time for those special effects. Wow. Because you think about it, it's mostly Robert Patrick and only in fighting scenes does that liquidy metallic Mm -hmm. form come out. That's true. Yeah. And the uh, members of several U.S. federal nuclear testing labs unofficially declared that the nuclear nightmare scene, which I saw this today, I watched this movie today, amazing scene, was the most accurate depictions on screen of a nuclear fallout. Oh, God. That's interesting. It's so scary. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. 
But no, that is a truly like frightening scene. Plus, to this day, there are so many fun facts on the IMDb IMDb page of this that I could not list them all. But they range from like you know the deleted scenes of this to Arnold getting paid like twenty million bucks for eighteen lines of dialogue. Jeez. Yeah. Which I want to give credit to Arnold Schwarzenegger because like it's not obviously a performance that you're going to throw awards to, but he's like for what the film needs, he's really, really good, you know, with like the way he delivers the lines and kind of even provides some comic relief, but in a way that's not over the top and oh, maintains yeah. that kind of robotic look. He's really good in this movie. And I think that's a really underrated aspect. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> so great. Yeah. The interactions between him and Edward Furlong are just really awesome too. So. For sure. Uh, but yeah, you put AFI 100 Years 100 Thrills, number 77. And the Terminator, the number 48 hero. Really shocked the T-1000 did not make the top 50 villains. Right. Yeah, That's like, really weird to me. It's like great. Like he is very chilling. The way he just does everything. It's great. Yeah. And he doesn't blink. Right. <laughs> Even when he's running. Uh, 100 movie quotes. Number 76 for hasta la vista, baby. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and number eight, science fiction film, which is kind of cool, too. So yeah. I think I haven't seen. I think the only one I haven't seen is Terminator 3. And I do like the Terminator series, but this one is like far above the rest for me. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, like, three is not terrible. It's like, it's it's enjoyable if you like Terminator. Yeah. Um. So this is, uh, Toby said it won four Oscars, nominated for a total of six. It won best makeup. Oh yeah. Best sound, sound effects, editing, and of course visual effects. Good. It was nominated for cinematography and editing. There you go. Six awards and no best picture. I mean, in the lineup of ten, it probably would have done it. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. I think so. All right. Toby, would you like to lead us into our final movie? Okay, so the final one is uh, Thelma and Louise. Um, Thelma and Louise, directed by Ridley Scott, is a um, story about two women, Thelma and Louise, who um, decide to go on a road trip. And uh, something bad happens. One of them is... Uh, raped and they have to go on the lamb because uh, Thelma I believe it's Thelma kills the man and they're both afraid that nobody's going to believe them uh, so the whole movie is just them on the lamb and the poli- and there's scenes where the police are trying to find them Brad Pitt is also in it <laughs> it's kind of like a, a great movie even today of like women and it's often cited uh, for its like empowering kind of story. Um, it's interesting that you say like they they're they're going on the land. First of all, I love people using that phrase of on the land. That's what they were doing. <laughs> who don't know that phrase? But um, so you're saying they're only doing that because they don't think anybody will believe them. Like how again? How relevant to today? Yes. You have victims of sexual abuse, sexual assault, not being believed. 
and the people going free. So instead of like letting the law handle it, they take really matters into their own hands. And then there is our plot. Yeah. It is a true road movie. Um, you know, road trip, buddy film. And one of the best at that. I love it. I've, I don't know, like I've seen this movie like in pieces so many times on TV, like on AMC. And I think I've seen it in its entirety before this, but I obviously I watched it for this and it just flows so well. I mean, from scene to scene, the editing is really good. Both lead actresses, Susan Sarandon and uh, Gina Davis are both just phenomenal in their own ways, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people will say, and I agree, that, like, it's hard to choose, like, which one is better because they're both so good. But they're also, like, very, very unique performances between the two of them as well. Right. It's sort of like a situation where they're both equally as good and they both rely on each other, their performances and like, but they're unique too. Like you said, um, I can't really point to one that would be like, Oh, that would be better than that one. That should have won over that. Cause it, yeah. it would have been too difficult. I would have loved to have seen the voting for this. Oh, same. Right. Well, like, cause I mean, I would pick Jody still, but like, yeah. Yeah. Who would be second would be like, can I just pick both for a second? <laughs> It just almost makes me wish that, like, it's one of those cases where I wish the two movies had come out in recent years, because, like, these are both performances where I would love to see an Oscar win. Um, especially because, you know, both Gina Davis and Jodie Foster had won before this year. Mm-hmm. But I'm not one to say, you know, um, this person should win because that won before. And Susan Sarandon would win a few years later for Dead Man Walking anyway. Um, but gosh, it's it's like both of these performances deserve Oscars. If you give out three that year, I'd be <laughs> down. That'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I really love to. I like the uh, the cinematography in this too. Of like, it would be really nice to see this in a theater because you know they're driving down the road and and it's just like these wide shots. I really like. I really liked those a lot. Yeah, because, I mean, they're, it's capturing, like, uh, where did they end up? New Mexico? Arizona? You know, one of like, those two? Yeah, because they don't want to go through Texas. Yeah, they don't want to go through yeah. Texas. Um, but, yeah, the, the visual shots of that are really stunning. Um, you know, as they're kind of driving on the road in their car. And a really great female friendship here. Um, where they're, like, it's beyond a friendship, even. Right. Oh, it is beyond a friendship. Oh, this is leading to my point. Yes. So there are very, this is for you, Zay. There are very <laughs> queer undertones, queer undertones to this film. Yeah. Especially in the final shot. And Sarandon has gone on to say in the documentary, The Celluloid Closet, that that scene at the end where she kisses Gina Davis, like they didn't tell anybody but themselves that that was going to happen. And like, why not? You know, yeah. these are two women in love with each other. Be it be like love, like I love you, you love me, or these two women just love each other for who they are, who they've been. They've stuck together through all that's happened. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. As they say, they're like, let's just do it. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, they, they, they understand each other, you know, mm-hmm. in a way yeah. that 
no man is going to. You know, they're both in relationships currently, but it's not working out. Yeah, because of what they've been through, like, they both have been through it. Like, one of them was raped, but they both have, are, like, in it for, in it for, to the end, because they have that relationship where it's like, what's happened to you has happened to me because we are so intertwined. Yeah. And that's why they stick together, even though, you know, I, I have to have time to have time remembering who's Thelma and Louise, but I do um, too. <laughs> I believe it's Louise. She could have left, but she chose not to because she didn't yeah. kill the man, you know. Alright, yeah. so for Susan Sarandon is Louise. Okay, so Thelma could have left because Louise killed him. Yeah. yeah. I also love how like they both trade off being the more authorita- authoritative figure. So right. like for the a lot of the beginning of the movie, it's like it's like Susan Sarandon kind of leading the way and Thelma just like wants to live free for a while, like not under the abuses of her husband. And at times she almost comes off as like not as intelligent as she really is. But then in the latter part of the movie, she like takes over, becomes pretty much a badass, robs the store. Yeah, I was going to say that's the point when she turns into the more authoritative one is when she robs the store. Because yeah. you don't see that coming at all. You really right. don't. She kind of like view, she kind of like just takes over and says, you know, this is what we're doing now. This is like, I think she kind of realizes their situation at that point you know yeah let's keep going right exactly do you both love the final shot as much as i do yes i love it because like just like from the point where they're they're about to go it's just like i don't know i was shocked like i was like it's one of those scenes where you're like you hold your breath and it's like <laughs> It's you know. almost like it's almost like you want them to have gotten out of that car too. Yeah. You know. See, I, yeah. I was reading like Roger Ebert reviews for a lot of these films today. And I don't think I've ever I have, but hard to think of many other times I've disagreed with him more. And I love Roger Ebert. But he his biggest complaint about this movie he said the only reason he didn't give it four stars was because he thought the final shot should have gone on for another five to ten seconds to really get the payoff. Like, really? I disagree, we like, wholeheartedly. We know what's going to happen in that five to ten seconds. Yeah, like, exactly. Um, but really noticeable notable that this did win Best Original Screenplay, because I think the screenplay is definitely one of the strongest aspects, and what the actors do with it is really great. Some of the lines, like I wrote down, um, law some tricky shit, isn't it? I don't even remember when that occurred, to be honest, but I love that line. Um there's a lot of that throughout with the dialogue the two share and the journey they go on together is pretty great. Right. Yep. Um, so this one, one Oscar, uh, best original screenplay, Callie Corey, who had actually, I learned been thinking about this and writing this movie since 1979. And at that time, Ridley Scott, like even 1979, Ridley Scott was going to produce this and she was going to direct it until it became more of a studio movie and not like an independent feature. Mm -hmm. And then it was nominated for five, including director for Scott, two best actresses, the last to do a double actress nom for both Davis and Sarandon, cinematography and film editing. 
Yeah. Um, wow. I see you put originally Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster for the lead roles. Also very interesting. What was Michelle Pfeiffer doing, though? I, she, like, Signs of the Lamb, she didn't get. She didn't get this. Right. Yeah. Um, something interesting about this film is that Susan Sarandon is actually, like, what, 10 years older than Gina Davis? Or something like that? And you don't get that from the movie. No, not at all. Yeah. but I didn't know that, actually. <laughs> and then we have uh, the one, the only, the Brad Pitt in this movie. Oh, my gosh. It's so funny because he sounds nothing like Brad Pitt. Nope. No. <laughs> you can tell he did this for the money. Oh, but I love it. I do, too. I had to give it a five this time. I don't know. Just really... Because I watched it for a class before, so I've watched it three times. I watched it for a class one time, so I've really liked looked at it before. It's really good. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, all the films we've talked about, I think, were actually not just films we really liked and wanted to watch, but films I think were all fairly close to a Best Picture nomination and might have gotten in in an expanded year. Yes, I think so. the exception of maybe Cape Fear to a degree, but even then, it's Scorsese. Um, but some honorable mentions we have from this year include the Steven Spielberg movie, Robin Williams in Hook. Which I don't get why people hate that movie. I haven't seen it in forever. But I, like I know I used to enjoy it. Uh, we got The Addams Family. Yay. We got Night on Earth. Y'all know about that movie? No. Heard okay. of it. Jim Jarmusch. It's on Criterion. It's a great character study. Interesting. Hmm. Um, we got Fried Green Tomatoes, Kathy Bates. The book is better, but <laughs> yeah, the the movie's good. The book is better. Yeah, yeah I mean. So I we got Father of the Bride, which we talked about the original, the 1950 version. This I is a grew, version with Steve Martin. I grew up with this movie. <laughs> it's a fun one. City Slickers, which is notable for the Jack Palance win, where he went on stage and did push-ups after accepting his Best Supporting Actor Oscar. One arm. <laughs> yeah, one arm push-ups. It's uh, fine. It, it's okay, yeah. Billy Crystal's in it. So, um, Jungle Fever, which is Spike Lee, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of the movie that also put Samuel L. Jackson on the map. Oh. Yeah, my dad likes that movie. Uh, we've got Soap Dish. Uh, Toby, you've seen this one, right? Yeah. Uh, you better have amazing comedy about the work <laughs> of the soap operas. Oh, interesting. For the Boys? Yes. Uh, Bette Midler got nominated for Best Actress. It's a movie about, like, sort of think of, like, the USO tour in the wars. Mm, okay. Um, we have Stepping Out. The only movie <laughs> that Zay and I have seen and y'all haven't okay <sighs> it's a great Liza Minnelli thing nobody's uh, heard of it nobody has seen it it's delightful okay that's all I need to hear uh Rambling Rose Laura yes. Dern and Diane Ladd it's I don't like it <laughs> uh Solo Contu Paraha Toby and I saw this it's Alfonso, Alfonso Cuarón's first theatrical film. Ah, you told me about this. 
Yes. So um, also with your partner is the English version named. Only with your partner, yeah. Only with your partner, yes. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Point Break, which I actually did not realize came out this year until just now. I thought it was later for some reason. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Okay, uh, so, these, so these next three, I want you to read them back to back to back, and then I'll say my piece. Okay, we got Curly Sue, My Girl, and Sleeping with the Enemy. The trifecta of films that I grew up watching, half of them, never have seen them in full because my parents used to watch them on HBO, so much so that last night I walked into their bedroom and they were watching Sleeping with the Enemy. <laughs> and when I woke up today, they were also watching Sleeping with the Enemy. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I've never seen those movies in full. I've only seen bits and pieces of them, though I know what they're all about. There you go. And my girl is famous for being so damn sad. See? Yes. Don't spoil Gosh. it. I, I don't know if Toby's seen it. But yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so those are our honorable mentions from this year. So we covered six films, got a bunch from this year to talk about. And so we can go right into our personal awards. We always do the screenplay categories. We do the acting categories, director, and best picture. This is always a fun segment that I always look forward to seeing where we differ, where we agree. So I'm going to ask you both. Do you both have, like, nominees for each of these categories? Yes. Yes, I have a few for each. Perfect. So let's go ahead and start with um, best original screenplay. Toby, if you want to go from um, going up to your number one, what would you have? So I have, like, uh, Barton Fink, The Fisher King, and Boys in the Hood as number one. Very nice. But not nowhere, Thelma and Louise? <laughs> yes, well, of course Thelma and Louise, but, you know, I didn't think about that when I was writing this list. <laughs> Fair. The original adapted screenplays are always the hardest. Right. Um... But I had four here, so I obviously forgot to put one, too. <laughs> so I have The Fisher King, Barton Fink, Boys in the Hood, and I had Thelma and Louise as my winner. Okay. okay. Christian, what do you got? Okay, so I just realized I had to switch some stuff around. So I have Solo Contu Pareja, which is the Alfonso movie. So I only have four. Um, Barton Fink, The Fisher King, because, again, I didn't realize it was original. Thelma and Louise, and my winner is Boys in the Hood. Nice. All right. Toby, what do you got for best adapted screenplay? I have uh, JFK, Beauty and the Beast, and my winner is Science of the Lambs. Great book. Great movie. All right. So I had I had five here. I had number five, Cape Fear. Number four, I went ahead and put Terminator 2. Again, got love those themes. Yeah. Number three, Beauty and the Beast. Number two, JFK. And I agree, number one, Silence of the Lambs. Cool. Uh, so Christian. I have number five, Fried Green Tomatoes. Number three, The Prince of Tides. Or number four, I'm sorry, The Prince of Tides. Number three, JFK. Number two, Beauty and the Beast. And number one, The Silence of the Lambs. All right. Three for three there for Silence. One of his five. All right, let's go on next to Best Supporting Actor. Toby, if you want to take us away. Supporting Actor. I had uh, John Goodman for um, Barton Fink and Robert Patrick for Terminator 2. Judgment Day is my winner. Wow, nice. 
So I had, this was a tough category for me. So yeah. I'm with my main five. I really liked Harvey Keitel on Thelma and Luis. So he's my number five. Donald Sutherland, JFK, my number four. Ice Cube, Boys in the Hood would be my number three. John Goodman, Barton, Goodman for Barton Fink would be my two. And number one would be Lawrence Fishburne for Boys in the Hood. Uh, my number five is Robert Patrick for Terminator. Tommy Lee Jones for JFK. Number three, Donald Sutherland for JFK. Number two, Mr. Goodman for Barton Fink. And my number one, like Brett, is Lawrence Fishburne for Boys in the Hood. Nice. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne is a good choice, for sure. Yeah. Which did he go by Larry in that movie? I think he uh, might have. I think I he's know. only gone through Larry and like Apocalypse Now. Oh, okay. I call him Larry though. <laughs> hey Larry. <laughs> All right. Best supporting actress. Toby. I put down um Linda Hamilton for Terminator, Jessica Tandy for Fried Green Tomatoes, and my winner. Uh, Tyra Farrell in uh, Boys in the Hood. All right. Good pick. Uh, so I had five, but I kind of had trouble filling this one out. Kate Nelligan for Prince of Tides, Amanda Plummer for The Fisher King, Judy Davis for Barton Fink. I really liked her in that. Hmm. Juliette Lewis for Cape Fear, and I would give it to Mercedes Rule for The Fisher King. Okay. All right. So mine is very interesting. So my number five pick is Kathy Bates. My number four pick is Mary Stuart Masterson. And my number three pick is Jessica Tandy. All three from Fried Green Tomatoes. Wow. And my number two pick is Amanda Plummer for The Fisher King. And my winner is Mercedes Rule for The Fisher King. Okay. All so right. This is a very hard category because I didn't really see a total outstanding standout. Same. Right. Considering I only have two movies represented here. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Getting in the lead categories. Toby, you want to take us away with best leading actor? Leading actor. So I had uh, Jeff Bridges in The Fisher King. Uh, Daniel. I don't want to get this. It's Daniel Cacho from Only With Your Partner. Oh. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., Boys in the Hood. Robin Williams, The Fisher King. And then Anthony Hopkins for the win. Yeah, this is another tough one, leaving people off. My number five is Jeff Bridges, The Fisher King. Four, Robert De Niro for The Cape Fear. Three, Robin Williams for The Fisher King. Two, Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides. And number one is Anthony Hopkins for Silence of the Lambs. Right. My number five is Steve Martin for Father of the Bride. Ah, Love that movie. <laughs> Robin Williams for The Fisher King, number four. Nick Nolte, The Prince of Tides, number three. Jeff Bridges, The Fisher King. And my number wow. One, yeah, my number one is Anthony Hopkins for Silence. Okay. All right. So Silence is two for two on the awards it actually won. Same with us. All right, going into Best Leading Actress. Toby, take us away. So I actually have Kathy Bates in Leading Actress because I feel like she's in Friday Good Tomatoes. And then I have uh, Barbara Streisand, Prince of Tides, Two and three are um, Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. Uh, I put Gina as number two. I think it's ever so slightly. And then number one, Jodie Foster, Silence of the Lambs. All right. So for mine, I put Linda Hamilton in lead. It's my number five for Terminator 2. 
Then I have Barbara Streisand for Prince of Tides. Gina Davis for Thelma and Luis. My number two is Susan Sarandon. Again, ever so slightly. Could go back and forth. And my number one, of course, Jodie Foster, Silence of the Lambs. All right. So I have number five, Liza with a Z for stepping out. That's Liza Minnelli for all you plebeians <laughs> there. Um, Bette Midler for For the Boys at number four. Babs, Barbara, again for you plebes, for The Prince of Tides. At number two, because I can, I have both Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon in a joint nomination. Okay, but when you said like those first three, I'm like, oh my God, did he leave off Thelma or Louise? Which is it going to be? <laughs> ah, I was thinking no, that. It is a joint nomination. Yeah. All right. right. And my number one is Jody for The Silence of the Lambs. All right. Mm-hmm. Moving on to Best Director. Toby, take us away. I had uh, Barbara Streisand, Prince of Tides, John Singleton, Boys in the Hood, Ridley Scott, Thumb and Louise, James Cameron, Terminator 2, and Jonathan Demme, number one. Did I say that wrong? Wait a minute. Nope, you're good. Okay. Mine is very close to that. Uh, My number five is Barbara Streisand for Prince of Tides. Give her that nomination. John Singleton, Boys in the Hood is my number four. James Cameron is my number three for Terminator 2. Uh, number two is Oliver Stone for JFK. And number one is Jonathan Demme for, again, for Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Number five, Babs for The Prince of Tides. Number four, Mr. Conspiracy Theorist himself for JFK. Number three, John Singleton for Boys in the Hood. Uh, two, James Cameron for Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And my winner is Jonathan Demme. For the silence of the lambs. Okay, so this must have been a good year uh, because all three of us agree with four of the five wins for Science of the Lambs so far. <laughs> so for Best Picture, as always, we're actually going to count down our top ten films because um, we watched so many. And so, Toby, if you want to take us away with number ten and work your way up. So I have Barton Fink, Fried Green Tomatoes, The Prince of Tides, the Fisher King, JFK, Boys in the Hood, Thelma and Louise, Terminator 2, The Silence of the Lambs, and then I have to go with Beauty and the Beast for number one, Best Picture, 91. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it have just been cool? It would have been very picture cool. To win. It would, have, it would have been the parasite moment of the 90s. Of the yeah. It would That's have. true. All right. So my number 10 is The Fisher King. Number 9, The Prince of Tides. <laughs> number 8, Cape Fear. Number 7, Barton Fink. Number 6, JFK. Number 5, Beauty and the Beast. Number 4, Thelma and Louise. Number 3, Boys in the Hood. Number two, Terminator 2, and number one, The Silence of the Lambs. Christian's been absolutely shocked since my number five pick. <laughs> okay, but just talk about how good this year is. Number yeah. five through one for yeah, me sure. are all five-star movies. Like these, th- This is such a good year for movies, really. It is. Something it's incredible. Goodness. All right, Christian, what do you got? My number 10 is Cape Fear. Number nine, The Prince of Tides. Number eight, Father of the Bride. 
Should have picked that for us to watch. Number seven, Thelma and Louise. Number six, The Fisher King. Number five, Boys in the Hood. Number four, JFK. Three, Terminator 2. Two, Beauty and the Beast. And number one, The Silence of the Sheep. <laughs> Them lambs. Awesome. Those lambs are still crying, aren't they? You know, I got to say, of all the years we've covered so far, and we covered some really good ones, this might just be my favorite collection of movies for a single year, um, especially near the top. I mean, we watched 11, 12 movies, and the fact that five of them are five-star movies for me, it's pretty yes. awesome. Yes, though. So, great year. I agree. All right, folks. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our return to our typical segment of the podcast, um, season two, the beginning of season two. And so we've got more years coming up. Um, coming up, we're going to talk about the year 1956. I and the Oscars for that year. Christian remembers it well. Long movies, so be ready. Um, and then, of course, we've got a number of years coming up after that, so be sure to keep tuning in. As always, thanks for listening, for those who are so dedicated, and um, share this with folks and listen every time we put put out a new episode. As always, rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen, Um, and you can find us basically anywhere. Um, Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Follow us on guildedfilms.com. And as always, our theme music was composed by Joshua Arnaldi, so thanks go out to him as well. And Toby, any final thoughts from you on the year for 1991? It's a great year. I mean, two of the movies are in my top ten, and Terminator is pretty high up there, too. So, 91, pretty great year. <laughs> Very nice. Well, thanks again for joining us. Checks in the mail. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> thanks for having me, though. And Christian, any final thoughts from you? No, except I love doing these. I love watching the collection of movies and talking about them. Yes. Good to be back. Season two. Awesome. Loving it. We will be back soon. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. See you.